Amen. I would ask you this morning to open in your Bibles to the first chapter of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1. When I mentioned the brevity of the time that remains until the Christmas celebration comes, I heard a lot, saw a lot of his nodding in a sense that, yeah, the time is short. And uh, it's come upon us sort of quickly. But uh, it enabling us to be prepared uh, more uh, for the Christmas season. In the celebration of the Christmas holidays, uh, I thought it would be good to take a, a couple of weeks at least and uh, have our minds be refreshed with respect to the pivotal events that surround the coming and birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are beginning a return to what are called the Synoptic Gospels, the first three Gospels of the New Testament. And I think it's a fitting way to do that, to Look at Matthew's account of the birth of Jesus in his opening chapters of his gospel. There are two gospels that give to us birth narratives. Matthew's gospel does, and the gospel according to Luke. They are different in a lot of ways. Matthew, as we'll see this morning, focuses upon Joseph and Joseph's genealogy. Maybe we're not going to see that as clearly until next week, but clearly in chapter 1, the focus is upon Jesus' father, his legal father, Joseph. While Luke supplements Matthew's account by putting the focus upon our Lord's mother, Mary. Luke, as we've said in a couple weeks back, he gives a song. Matthew just gives us straight narrative and gives us genealogy. Luke gives us genealogy too, but he gives us a little bit later in his book in chapter 3. And again, those genealogies differ because I think there's a, a difference in either it's, well, there's a couple of explanations for the differences, but it may well be this is Joseph's genealogy and Luke's is, is Mary's genealogy. Matthew's account is, relatively speaking, brief. Luke is more than twice as long. Though there are these differences, and many more differences, both accounts agree on the essentials. Both the accounts tell us that Jesus' birth was anticipated, and even announced by angels sent from God, both to Joseph in a dream and to Mary. Both tell us that Mary's conception is not from Joseph, that she conceives by the Holy Spirit. That which is begotten in her is of the Holy Spirit. We're told that Joseph, as well as Mary, would be of the royal line of David. Both accounts tell us that his name shall be called Jesus. Matthew tells us why. For it is he who will save his people from their sins. Birth, both Gospels tell us that Jesus' birth took place 
in the reign of Herod the Great. Herod takes the principal part in chapter 2 of Matthew's account. Both tell us that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. The word that went out to the shepherds, that behold this day there is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Here in chapter 2, when the wise men from the east come and say, where is he who was born king of the Jews? They go and find him, it was in Bethlehem. That the promised Messiah, according to Micah chapter 5 and verse 3, was to be born. And both these Gospels tell us that he was reared in Nazareth. So they agree on the essentials, yet they tell us the story from a decidedly different perspective. Matthew places a lot of emphasis, as we're going to see um, in the next couple of weeks, upon dreams. People get commands from God in their dreams. They get angel visitations in their dreams. And then they wake up from those dreams in which those commandments were given by angels or they heard commandments given to them. You know what they did? They obeyed what the commandments told them to do. And then in each of these places where dreams were had and commandments were obeyed, we're told in each one of these instances that all of this happened to fulfill what the prophets had spoken. So that's kind of a way that Matthew presents it that tells us he's kind of, he's not in a rut, he's in a good thing. He's in a good thing, presenting it to us in that fashion. And it's good to read it, taking note of how he structures his gospel. There are dreams in which Joseph, for instance, is told, don't fear to take Mary to be your wife. And then he doesn't fear, and he obeys, and takes Mary to be his wife. And that's to fulfill what Isaiah 7.14 said. Then he's warned in a dream, I'm sorry, the, angel, the wise men are warned not to return to Herod. That's in a dream. I don't think there's a scripture passage that supports that, but they did obey, and they went back to their homes. Then there was a dream that commanded Joseph to flee from Herod to go to Egypt, and he obeyed. And then, as another command is given to return, we're told well, that was to fulfill what the prophet Hosea said, out of Egypt have I called my son. And then there's a warning uh, that Joseph receives in a dream to return to Galilee, that he obeys. And then it's said that that's to fulfill this word that said, he will be called a Nazarene. So we have that pattern that's given. Well, what we're going to do this morning is we're not going to cover a great deal of material. We're just going to focus our minds upon the first 17 verses. Although some of you would think, for you, that should be a lot of material to cover in one sermon. Perhaps that's true. But what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at where Matthew begins in these opening verses. The heart of which is this genealogical record of Jesus' family tree. Jesus' ancestors tracing them back to the father of the nation of Israel, Abraham, to the greatest of all of Israel's kings, King David. And on each side of the family tree that goes from verse 2 to verse 16, we have information given in terms of a heading. That's the first verse of chapter 1. Before the genealogy is given, there's a heading of what this genealogy is about. And then there's a summary that's found in verse 17 about all the generations being 14 generations. So 
We're going to look at those, the, 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 the passage itself in that light. We're going to look first at the heading of verse 1. Then we're going to look at the genealogy from 2 to 16. And then we're going to look at the summary that comes to us in the words of verse 17. Let's begin with the heading. Now, again, most of us are dealing with an English translation. But if you were to go back to the Greek, you'd be interested to know that the translation of the word genealogy, the book of the genealogy, is the Biblos of the Genesis. It's the book of the Genesis. It's actually the word that we use for the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. But this Greek word, Genesis, is also used in the book of Genesis itself some ten times, dividing up the book of Genesis in terms of generations, it says. This is the generations of the heaven and the earth, it says in chapter 2. This is the generation of Adam that comes to us, I believe, in 5.1. It's about 10 of those statements, each of them telling the story of the thing that is going to come. Some say it's to tell the story of the thing that's already happened, but everyone's agreed it's telling the story. It's given an account. It's given a narrative of these things. And that comes in a book of origins, the book that tells you how everything began. And so what Matthews is concerned to do by using this word, first of all, he's connecting us with the Old Testament, is he not? If he's using a word like Genesis, our minds are going to go back to the whole history of God's dealings with the human race from Genesis on, onward. So we're going to be connected to the Old Testament. And then not only are we come to associate uh, Matthew's gospel with the, with the opening, but it's also, in a sense, the new beginnings. It's the new beginnings. That Jesus comes to bring about a new creation. He comes to bring about, as we read this morning in Jeremiah 23, the new exodus that God has promised. He's come to bring the new reign of God, the new king in Israel that Jesus himself becomes. Um, so all these things are about these new things, these uh, beginnings, these origins. And the major question regarding this heading is whether Matthew intended the heading to refer to the whole book or just the first genealogy or the first chapter or the first section. Um, I think at least it refers to chapter 1 because the same word genealogy is used in the words of verse 18. Remember I told you, I think it was last week, I told you the story about a preacher friend or a preacher that I knew who told his story of his testimony in terms of taking the New Testament and determining he was going to read through the entirety of the New Testament. And he started out in Matthew chapter 1. And he began to read, um, Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat this next one. And he comes to the realization, I don't even know what it means to begat anything. What is this talking about? And he's about to quit. He's about to give up on the whole reading project until he came to the words of verse 18, when he read in the King James Version, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. Ah, finally, something I understand. But you know, the word birth in chapter 18, I'm glad that his conversion came about by reading the King James Bible and coming to the place where birth was something that he understood. Because if you read it in the Greek, you wouldn't necessarily translate it birth. You could translate it birth, but it's actually the same word as chapter verse 1. It's Genesis. Now the Genesis of Jesus Christ took place in this way. It could speak of his birth because Genesis usually in this world begins at birth. 
Our story in this world begins with our birth. But perhaps is also referring to the conception of Jesus or the fact that these things happen to fulfill what was spoken of the prophet of old. It's hard to know exactly because it's part of what is, genea- is Jesus' genealogy, Jesus' record of his history, his ancestry, his eternality, according to John chapter 1, as well as his coming in, into the world. So the word itself is ambiguous, but I think the genealogy of Jesus Christ that Matthew is speaking about at least refers to the first chapter, if not the whole gospel itself. I'm sort of up in the air about which assessment I think is so, but at least for this for our purposes this morning, we know that at least it refers to this first chapter where we can read here about the account the record, the origin of Jesus Christ. But then, Jesus Christ, in terms of his genealogy, his origin, his beginnings, the one who has come into the world, he's identified with relate, in relation to two illustrious personages from the Old Testament scriptures. Israel's greatest king, King David, and Israel's patriarch, the father of the nation, Abraham. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now the interesting part of the mention of these two great figures of Old Testament history is that they're not presented to us in chronological order. It's backward. I think if I was going to write this, I'd write it. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Well, we're going to start with the beginning. Let's start with Abraham. Abraham came first. He lived centuries prior to King David. But that's not what Matthew does. He says it backward. He says, son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, I'm just going to ask you to take note of that. The reason for that, you'll, you'll understand it before we get done this morning. I guarantee it. At least you should. At this point... Just take note of it. But he is the father. I mean, he is the the son of of Abraham. I want to just focus there a moment, because I won't have much more to say about this in the rest of the message this morning. That Jesus' ancestry is traced back to the father of Israel. Israel's first father, Abraham. I don't think that Matthew just throws that off the cuff for filler. It's the personage of Abraham who was one taken from pagan origins to make it be made a child of God. And not only taken from pagan origins, being a worshiper of pagan gods, to become a child of God, but he's the one through whom God said all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And if that's so, if that's what's in Matthew's mind, he's the one through whom all the nations of the earth could be blessed. If that's a primary thought that should be in our minds when we think of Abraham, yes, there are other thoughts, but that's one important aspect. I think it would be interesting, that's the very note upon which Matthew ends his gospel. All the nations of the earth being blessed. Look with me at Matthew chapter 28. We call this the Great Commission. The resurrected Christ, he comes to Galilee, to the mountain that he had designated. And when they saw him, we're told in verse 17, they worshipped him. 
that some doubted even at that point and Jesus came and said to them all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me keep that in your minds all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me go therefore and make disciples of who? of all the nations of all the nations God said to Abraham through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed I will make you a father of many nations now, did Israel ever fulfill that promise? In the life history of the nation that we read about in the Old Testament, was that a missionary enterprise you see in Israel of old, going to the nations with the message of Jehovah, the message of Israel's God, the message of Yahweh, King of Israel? Oh, no. God would send a prophet like Jonah to Nineveh to preach a message to the Ninevites he said, never, no way, no how, I'm going the opposite direction. Book the passage quickly to Tarshish. I'm not going near Nineveh, go the opposite direction. And even when God got him to be swallowed up by a great fish and spit out on dry land, we finally he unwillingly concedes and he goes to Nineveh, yet when he brings the message and the Ninevites repent, Jonah's outside the city bemoaning his own his own suffering under heat because the gourd that had protected him for a day was no longer there and he has no sympathy at all for the Ninevites he had no regard for them though four, the thousands of them would have been slain if the city itself had been destroyed that was the attitude of the typical Israelite the Gentiles were dogs you don't eat with them you don't drink with them you don't have much doings with them you remain separate from them and now there was a point in which, of course, the people of Israel were to be separate from the nations, yet they were also to be spreading the light of the Lord to the nations. And here we find Jesus is the one who is the Israelite who does that very thing. It's Jesus who sends out his disciples to the nations because he's the seed of David. I'm sorry, the seed of Abraham. He's the son of Abraham through whom all the families of the earth will be blessed. And the interesting thing about Matthew's gospel is that whenever Abraham is mentioned in the gospel itself, it always seems to be in the context of the nations becoming the people of God. Let me turn you to a couple of these passages that assert that very thing. Look at Matthew chapter 3 and verse 9. Matthew 3 and verse 9. Again, my thought is that Abraham is mentioned in chapter 1 and verse 1 because the nations are blessed in chapter 28. And I think that where Abraham is mentioned, the possibility and actuality of the Gentiles becoming the people of God seems to be within our view. Here you find it in chapter 3 and verse 9. This is the ministry of John the Baptist. Many of the Pharisees and Sadducees he saw coming to his baptism. And he said to them, you brood of vipers, you children of snakes. Not a very complimentary term to use. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Then he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Don't take pride in your Abrahamic ancestry that you are Abraham's seed because God's able to raise up seed for Abraham even among stones. If God could raise him up from among stones, he certainly could do it from among Gentiles whose hearts were hardened to the reality of God and his grace. Yet the gospel that goes forth to those who have hearts of stone, those hearts of stone can be hearts of, become hearts of flesh. 
And that's the hope that Abraham's promise brings. Of people coming, becoming sons of Abraham, not necessarily through physical birth, but through repentance and through faith. Then you find in another passage that mentions Abraham, it's in chapter 8 and verse 11. This is even a clearer aspect of what I'm saying to you, is that when the centurion, the Roman centurion, again, not a Jew, a Gentile, when he demonstrated his faith, as a man who could t- tell his servants to do this and they do it, so Jesus could say to disease, be gone and it would, be begun, it would leave. He, he believed that Jesus had the power to do it. Didn't he didn't even have to come under his roof. And when Jesus heard this in verse 10, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I say to you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline a table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God. What's that saying? That's saying many will be included amongst the covenant people of God that are not Jewish. They'll come from every land, every place, every nation. Jesus' ministry, though in a sense it was to gather the Lord's sheep from the house of Israel, yet it was ultimately through his death and resurrection to send the message of God's salvation to the ends of the earth. So at the end of the day, all the nations will be united in the kingdom of God with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All the believers among the nations will be gathered with the people of God. So I believe that's the reason that it's emphasized that Jesus was the son of Abraham because it's definitional of what Jesus has come to do. That through his death, burial, and resurrection, the ancient promise of the Abrahamic covenant will come about through the gospel going to the nations and the nations becoming the people of God through repentance and faith and baptism and tea being taught all things whatsoever Christ has commanded through the work of the Great Commission. And so that promised blessing comes through our Lord Jesus Christ himself. Well, we said something about the heading. Let me go to the names that are listed. What's likely the most unconventional part of this genealogy we find in Matthew chapter 1, this list of names that come from Abraham to Joseph, of whom Christ was born, is that included within this genealogy, there's the mention of four women. Now that's not unprecedented completely in the Old Testament. In the book of First Chronicles, in chapter 1, there's a lengthy genealogy that is given. And in that genealogy, the sons of Keturah are mentioned. That's Abraham's descendants through this woman named Keturah that we read about in Genesis. And then there's the mention of the descendants of Edom, in which a woman by the name of Mehitabel is mentioned. Who remembers her? Mehitabel. And she's said to be the wife of the king of Edom. And the king's name is also given. That's in 1 in verse 50. But other than that, I don't know of a single genealogy in the Old Testament in which a woman is mentioned at all. And here we have the mention of four women. 
See, the usual pattern of genealogies is here's the father, here's the son. It's a guy thing. Women are not included in ancient genealogies. But something transformative takes place in Jesus. That women are mentioned in the family line of our Lord. And I think that is vital to the work of God in terms of His Spirit being poured out upon all flesh where there is within the framework of the Christian salvation not a secondary way of salvation that the women receive. I know some would like to take Paul's statement to Timothy about women being safe through childbearing. doesn't mean that. Can't go into it now, but it doesn't mean there's another way of salvation for women and they have to be married and have to bear a lot of children. That's simply horrific heresy. But in Christ there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile in this Gentile inclusion as we've seen the message of the cross goes to the ends of the earth and that Gentiles are received into the kingdom of God on equal standing with Jews and women as well as men there's no distinction within the church with regard to standing and status and honor and praise and usefulness and blessing between men and women and that was one of the major distinctions in the ancient world in fact, you know, even today, if you picked up a Jewish prayer book, it's called a Siddur, and you looked into this prayer book, you'll find that there's a daily prayer that the Jews will pray. Even today, at least the Orthodox will pray the prayer. And you know what the prayer is? Some of you know. It's a thank you, Lord. I'm not a Gentile. I'm not a slave. And I'm not a woman. And it's those very areas of distinction where in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 29, Paul is, in, is concerned to say, in Christ there is no distinction. There's no division between slave and free. There's no division between Jew and Gentile. There's no division between male and female. We're all standing on equal footing in the grace of the gospel through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is borne witness to in the very fact that in a document like a genealogy that speaks in terms of inheritance and family tree and the significance of people, four women are brought into view. Not just the men, but these four women. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba. Now, it might also be true, though we don't know for certain, but it may well be true, that each of these women were also Gentiles. We know Ruth was a Moabitess in Tamar, and uh, I believe Rahab, of course, was a Canaanite, and Bathsheba was the wife of Uriah the Hittite, so she may have been a Hittite as well, or some other similar ethnic background. And so it may well be that these women were also Gentiles. And so their presence is to be seen in that light as well. But then the other thing that does seem to unite all of these women is that there was something about each of them that's told to us that bears upon the subject of some form of sinful thing that occurred or practice. Um, Tamar with regard to having relations with, uh, with Jacob, of the raising up of the children, um, because of the failure to abide by what's called liverite marriages. 
Not that it was necessarily her fault. And even Jacob tells her, you're in the right. You're in the right. You're more righteous than I. At least in terms of the customs of the times, it seems that Tamar had a claim that was not being answered by the family. Rahab, we're told that she was a, a prostitute, likely in conjunction with temple rituals, perhaps a temple prostitute. Ruth, we're not really told anything negative about her, except some look to make something about her relationship with Boaz as a bit of a, I don't know, seductory of some sort. We don't know that that's the case, but that's a thought that arises. Bathsheba was a victim. She was not an adulteress. I, I hear people say she committed adultery with David. No, no, you don't commit adultery with kings. Kings summon the women they want to sleep with, and there's little that the woman could do to say no. So I don't look at all of them as being sinful women, but all of them were involved in sinful circumstances. And the reason that I say that is not just that Jesus comes to save us from the guilt of our sins. Jesus comes to save us from even the consequences of sin when we're the victims of it. When we're the victims of it. When we're the victims of what others have done against us or others have failed to do with respect of us. Where women have been ignored and disregarded and were made to be placed in positions where they had to do what Tamar did. Or where they were at the end of their rope with respect to um, what their future would be in terms of a Ruth. And Jesus is able to bring healing to those that are sin's victims, as well as forgiveness to those who are perpetrators of sin. So it's not just the guilt, but it's all the consequences of sin in their fullness that Jesus comes to save us from. He shall be called Jesus, but is he who will save his people from their sins. But the beauty of the genealogy is it's all-inclusive. It's even the salvation of Jesus is all-inclusive. It includes women. It includes Gentile women. It includes women of different circumstances that have been troubled or compromised or sinful. And Jesus comes to be the Savior of all such who come unto God through faith in Him. So let me just leave it there with respect to the names. There's many other things could be said, but that's the most significant, I believe. And now I just want to say something about the summary. The summary statement we have in the words of verse 17 we read, so all of the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. From the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. What well, is the significance of 14 generations? I asked that question to a pastor recently. The answer I got was, well, that's uh, twice, twice seven. So since seven is a number of perfection, this is even more perfect. Well, okay, gotcha. I see, that, I see where you're going with that. Uh, is that really the answer? Uh, I, I don't really think so. I don't think there's examples of genealogies in the Bible that are grouped into 14 generations, although an argument is made for that even. I don't really think that's the answer either. Let me tell you what I think is the answer. I read recently that when... The ancient city of Pompeii that was destroyed by Mount Etna, the volcano, when that was, um, when they uncovered in, in archaeological digs the ancient city of Pompeii, they found graffiti on a wall. 
And that graffiti said, I love the woman whose number is. I don't remember what the number was, but some guy in Pompeii loved a girl. And instead of writing the name of the girl on the wall, he wrote the number of the girl. What's the number of the girl? Well, the number of the girl has to do with the fact that names comprised of letters in the ancient world, those letters were given numerical value. It started out with the simple numbers of 1 through 10, it was the first 10 numbers of the Hebrew alphabet, all the, so the same thing with the Greek. We have 14. Well, let me just to give you the sense of this in a little bit different way. Has anybody here ever watched NCIS? Is that a familiar television show to anybody besides me? Some of you have watched NCIS. Well, back in the day, I don't watch it anymore, but back in the day when I was watching NCIS, they had this Jewish agent who was once part of the Israeli Secret Service, and her name was Ziva David. Ziva David. And when the series ended, that part with Diva, Ziva David, there was a, a, a love that another agent named Tony Donato had. Now, if Tony Donato was to be like that guy in ancient Pompeii and write graffiti on a wall to speak of his love for Ziva, and he was to use her last name, David, which is the proper pronunciation of the name of David. Her name was Ziva David. We would say, Ziva David. You know what he would write on that wall? He would say, I love the girl whose number is. And it wouldn't be the number so much of her NCIS badge, but the number of the meaning of the letters of her name. It would be 14. It would be 14. But the name David, or the name David, is comprised of three letters in the Hebrew alphabet. The fourth letter, the sixth letter, and the fourth letter. You do the addition. Six, four, four is 14, right? David's name in what's called gematria or gematria, that's the way in which numbers are put for letters, is 14. And the Jews knew that. The ancients knew that. Some guy in Pompeii writes the name of his love in numerical form. The ancients knew those things. 666 is in the Bible because of the name for Nero, the emperor of Rome. It didn't come by accident. It's there. There are other ways in which biblical texts can be understood as underst with that understanding of the value of numbers. And what we see here in this genealogy is 14 generations from Abraham to who? To David. To David the king. And then remember when I read the genealogy, I told you there were 14 names or the next section where most of those names were familiar. We know of Solomon. We know of Rehoboam. We know of, Ace, of Jehoshaphat. We know of Joram and Uzziah. We know of Jotham and Ahaz. We know of Hezekiah. Why? Because they were Old Testament kings. They were all sons of Abraham. I'm sorry. David. They're all sons of David. So 14 generations to the greatest king anticipated by Israel, who is David, 
14 generations of Davidic kings, and then what happens? The Babylonian captivity, 14 names we know nothing about. Why? Because they were nobodies in Israel. They were not kings in Judah. 14 generations without a Davidic king. Wait a minute. God promised that there would never cease to be someone upon the throne of David. 14 generations, no throne of David, occupied by a descendant of David. But what you do have is you have 14 generations to who? The next king. The next king. The Lord Jesus Christ, who was called... Who, uh, 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 Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called the Christ. The Messiah, the King, comes as the Davidic King, the son of David. That's why David's put first in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David first, then the son of Abraham. This is David's genealogy. Dalit Vav Dalit, his name. 14 generations. Again, there were more than 14 generations when you go back to the Old Testament history. There were other kings not included. There were other people not included. But 14 generations means to highlight the importance of David in the Old Testament, the importance of the Davidic covenant, the importance of the Davidic promise, the importance of the fact that Jesus comes as the son of David to be the next king in Israel. Which is why this book ends with what? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Jesus is the king to whom all authority belongs. He's the one who ascends to the right hand of the majesty on high. He sits upon the throne of his father David in the heavenly places and pours out the Holy Spirit and brings in this new age, this new covenant, this new exodus as the new king. So the kingly right and the kingly rule, the kingly authority of Jesus is set forth in the words of this genealogy. So when the wise men come into Jerusalem, what are they concerned to ask? Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Maybe you thought genealogies weren't important. Maybe you thought, ho-hum, can't believe he's going there. Bunch of names. Hope you have a different mind. This is the genealogy that's put together to be impressing upon us the identity of this one who was born of Mary. This one who was born in Bethlehem, the city of David. The one who was born to be the son of David, king of Israel, king of the nations, born to rule, born to take his place on high, having led captivity captive, having given gifts to men, Pour out his spirit upon the nations to bring in the kingdom of God, God's reign in the hearts and in the lives of all who come unto God through faith in him. And that's where the story begins. It begins in the Old Testament. It begins with God preparing the way of his son through prophecy, through patterns through promises, all coming to fulfillment in the person of Jesus, his son. We can take up the story, God willing, in the next couple of weeks, seeing the importance of the names given to Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, the importance of the name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins, 
the importance of Jesus as the one who is the ruler and the shepherd of God's people, Israel, and all the ways in which Jesus is presented to us in this book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as we see his origins, the origins of the one who came, the one who was born, the one who we celebrate and we rejoice in for his redemptive accomplishments. May God be pleased to bless his word and let us draw near to him together in prayer. Father, we're thankful for our Lord Jesus. We're thankful that he is the king. We're thankful we can bow our heads and hearts in allegiance, that we can confess him to be Lord of all. We're thankful, Lord, that we receive from his hand the fullness of grace and blessing. We pray even now as we come to the supper of remembrance, as we recall the great act by which we were saved, we pray you would meet with us, you would draw near to us, you would show Jesus to us, and our hearts would be filled to overflowing with rapturous praise, with elevated sense of the privilege that it is to be a child of the living God. We ask you to hear our cries as we come before you. In Jesus' name, amen. As we do come to the supper, we do have a hymn to sing. And I did lose my order of worship. Now here it is. Number 192. Number 192.